Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning, Epicos. Uh, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Mark, in case you're new. Uh, I get to be one of the pastors here on staff. And just a question for you as we begin. Do you remember a time when you walked into a room uh, full of people that you, you didn't know? You remember? Some of you are like, please don't remind me of this time. Uh, some of you just joined a small group this week. Maybe it was, maybe it was this week. Others of you, other, other things. And, and here's the, the beauty of like the, the dichotomy that can exist between just personalities, right? Because some of us, uh, like me, I walk into a room full of people I don't know, and I'm like, man, how many friends can I come out with, right? Like, how many people can I get to know? How many stories can I hear, right? And some of us are just wired this way, an extroversion. You see people you don't know, and you're like, let me at them. Let's go. You know, everyone's going to know. Uh, we're going to know everybody here before I leave. And then there's others who are just a little bit different, right? And you're like, I just want to leave without crying and spending the whole day in the corner. Like, that's just maybe one person, one story, I'm good. I'm full, right? I'm good. And that's, that's fine. That's fine. Here's the thing is when you meet someone new, uh, one of the things that we love to ask is like, what do you do? And let's be honest, we don't care what they do, at least not at first, right? But it's just like we want to engage in conversation, and then we do start to care, like, what they do. And nothing is, is more uh, exciting than listening to someone who's just passionate about what they do. And, and maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's a career. There's people who just love what they do for a living, and they, they talk about that. Or perhaps it's something they do as a hobby, right? Not something they get paid to do necessarily, but just something that they enjoy doing. On every free moment, they, they, they love to do this. Uh, earlier this week, uh, I had a conversation with a local artist, and it, it went down like this. You know? And I asked him, I was like, man, when did you know that you were good at, at this? And he said the most artsy thing that every artist says, I always knew I was good at it. <laughs> no, yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. And um, I mean, you just ask other questions, right? Or, uh, just like, uh, you know, him talking about how he became a good artist, like the kinds of things he had to do to get better. And then talking eventually just about like the work that he ended up doing that kind of uh, made him known and more well-known. Uh, so people knew like what he did, so they would hire him to do it, right? What are we talking about? Like, so no matter what we do for career or maybe our favorite hobby, like these three things are kind of intrinsic in terms of knowing who we are, why we love what we do, uh, becoming the kind of person that you need to become to do what you want to do, and then actually doing it, right? Actually doing it is really important, right? If you're an engineer and you went to, you know, school for being an engineer and you start talking to someone about engineering and they say, what do you engineer? And they say, nothing. It's just like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, uh, doing is actually really important. Like doing the thing is actually really, really important. Why does all this matter? As we continue in our series, one, two, three, John. John helps us unpack exactly what a disciple looks like. We talk about making more and better disciples. Tommy talked about that already this morning. And, and sometimes just even the definition of a disciple can be a very unique conversation, a really easy question to ask and a really easy question to answer. And then the more we talk about it, a really complex question. But what John does here as we continue in our series in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, is he gives us a full understanding of what it means to be a disciple. More specifically, a fuller understanding of what it means to be someone who walks the way. 
Now, uh, our series is called Walking the Way. This is not like a pithy statement that we invented. This is John's language. In, in, in verse 6, we're going to see him use this language, walk uh, in the way in which he walked. And depending on your translation, this is what he's saying, that you walk in the way of Jesus. But what does it mean to walk in the way of Jesus? To walk in the way of Jesus is to be a disciple of Jesus. And John shows us these, these three things. So let's go ahead and let's open our Bibles together. Uh, if you got a physical Bible, open it. Grab one out of the seat back in front of you. If you got a digital Bible that you use, maybe on your phone, pull that out. Uh, we have it on the screen as well. We, we want to encourage encourage you. Why do we say grab a Bible? We want to encourage, like this is a good spiritual practice to know how to go to the Bible. So whether you do it through your phone, your iPad, or a physical Bible, whatever you do, like this is why we encourage you to open the Bible. Because it's a good spiritual practice to have, to know how to go to the Bible. I use a digital Bible and a physical Bible throughout the week. Um, So anyways, here we go. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is what he says. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, well, he's a liar, And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And here we go, verse 6. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And you can see where we get the title for the series, Walking the Way. For those of us uh, that were here two weeks ago when we launched, this is to a quick refresher. For those who are new, let's just get up to speed. Who uh, is John? What is he writing? What should we know about this letter? Just, it's a good reminder for all of us. Reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. Reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. The Bible is a collection of, uh, of writings that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by different authors at different periods of time, different ethnic groups, uh, in different contexts. There's uh, poetry, there's prophecy, there's biography, right? There are, there are different, there's history, there's different forms of writing. So reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. So when John is writing, he's writing about two, three generations into the church, the early church, and he's writing to the, the, the church in Ephesus and around Asia Minor, and he's writing to them things that they would already, at least expectantly, know about, and he's trying to draw something out of something that they commonly know. So in John's uh, time, Aristotle still had a very strong uh, play in rhetoric, and so we talked about this two weeks ago, uh, epideictic rhetoric, which just simply means John is, is packing a punch with his writing, and he wants to grab our attention. And as we read 1 John, as we continue to read 1 John, which by the way, I just encourage you every week, make it a goal through this series. Every week you're going to read through the entire letter. It's not that long. Every week, read through the letters, get it over and over and over again. John's going to pack a punch and he's going to say things that make you go, wait, what? 
And he does it here in this text again today. He talks about the love of God being perfected. What's that about? We're going to talk about that. Jesus Christ for the sins of the whole world. Oh, what is that about? If we don't, if we don't keep his commandments, well, we're a liar. Wait a second. Like all his commandments, John's trying to pack a punch. He's trying to pull uh, something out that we should know about to grab our attention, to point us to something. So as you read through 1 John, I have two questions in mind. What is John trying to point to? And is John trying to correct any false teaching? Because John's also correcting a lot of false teaching here, and oftentimes they're paired together. But John is also very interesting to read because he uses words that no other New Testament writer uses. We have one here in our text, the word propitiation. Some of you are thinking, is that something I buy on Etsy? I've never heard that word before, right? Like, what is propitiation? Others of you, you're a little Bible nerdy, and you're like, oh, here we go. Let's just dive in. Calm down, all right? He uses, uh, he uses the word cosmos and, the word, uh, and understanding like the word world. Uh, often we come across this, so, so we have to understand who we're reading, what, what we're reading about. Again, there's three things that John pulls out to help us understand what a, what a true disciple looks like, what someone who wants to walk the way looks like. So let's dive into that first thing by reading, actually starting at the end of uh, chapter one. Why do we do that? An- another quick nugget for us this morning. It wasn't till about a thousand years after the scriptures were written that the church realized, man, we need a better way of understanding where we're going to go to when we talk about the text. And so through much scholarly and spirit-filled work, like chapters and verses were introduced into the Bible. But when John wrote this letter, John did not write it with chapters and verses. If someone wrote you an email and the first thing said chapter one, you're not reading that letter. <laughs> you're not reading that email, <laughs> right? He, he, he's writing to people that he loves. He's writing to people that he knows. And so the verses help us along the way, but they should never limit us, all right? So this is a, continual con- this is a continuous conversation. We're gonna start chapter one, verse nine. Here we go. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, Pastor Frank did a phenomenal job last week of just unpacking what John is talking about when he says, look, do not sin and the sin in our life and what that means and then confession. And man, I hope some of you were really challenged last week with just confessing and this whole idea of confessing sins, just mind-blowing to actually do that. Some of you entered into that space. Some stories kind of trickled in to the staff. We're so grateful for some of you who took who took that step. Why am I bringing that up? Because John had just said this really difficult text about sin. He spares no expense, right? Like the beginning of the letter. Hey, let's talk about sin. Like, whoa. Like, there's no, like, really eloquent way into it. He just dives right in. What does he say at the beginning of chapter two for us? He says, my little children. Now, is he belittling the church? No, not at all. Here's a helpful way to understand what, 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 how John is trying to communicate to them and even to us. Have you ever been in, in a serious conversation with someone that you love? And maybe not a difficult conversation, but, but, but a serious one. And have you ever found yourself using their name in the middle of, their, in the middle of your conversation to them? Why do you do that? Because you want them to know that you know them. You want them to know that you see them. You want, to know, you want them to know that you love them, that what you're about to say means something really important to you, and so it should mean real, something really important to them. 
That's what John's doing. He's talking about sin. He's like, look, my little children, like, I see you and I know you and I love you. Please listen. Please listen to me in this. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's kind of an exclamation point, if you will, on last week's message. But, thank goodness for that three-letter word in the Bible, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, which, by the way, in verse 9, when he says, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, how can we be cleansed from unrighteousness except for the righteousness of Jesus? So John's trying to point these things, tie these things together. Uh, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins, of the sins of the whole world. All right, so what are we talking about? Let's get into this big, hairy word called propitiation. Simply understood, propitiation means to like appease the wrath of the judgment, Okay. Scholarly uh, work here, what's, the bigger conversation that, that John is unpacking is called atonement. Uh, atonement is talked a lot about in the Old Testament. Again, propitiation, John's the only one to use this word. He uses it twice in, this, in his letter, and that's the only two times it appears in the Bible. And, and there's, there's different ways of viewing atonement. And some of you who are Bible scholars and Bible nerds, you're like, which theory am I about to unpack? None of them. <laughs> There are very helpful conversations. This is not the place to do it. Uh, invite, let's go have coffee. But I do think a layman's understanding of atonement is necessary. And I don't mean that in any kind of belittling way, but just like if there's a fundamental way to understand what it, what it means to be atoned by Christ, what is it? If someone asks you, what does it mean to be atoned by Jesus? Like, what can you say with confidence knowing that this is a really important issue. And so I'd just like to suggest, it's in the text, three things about atonement. Covering, cleansing, and conquering. Covering, cleansing, and conquering. The first thing that the atonement of Jesus does, this propitiation, this appeasing God's wrath, Jesus covers us. So, let's pretend like this table is us. And there is a brokenness between us and God. The relationship is broken. There's absolutely nothing we can do to appease this relationship. There's nothing that we can do to, to, to sufficiently uh, restore the relationship with God. God sees our sin, and so the sin has to be dealt with. There is wrath. There is judgment. And so what the atonement does is like, just pretend like I got a cloth, and you throw a cloth over the table, it covers us. And so God sees Jesus, and he sees us through the lens of Jesus, his atonement, it covers us. Now, why didn't I just bring a tablecloth? Because it gets even better, and I'm not that good at magic, so let's just use our imagination together. It doesn't just cover us, it cleanses us. What does that mean? It means like if you took the tablecloth off, the table would transform. It wouldn't be the same table anymore. It'd be a completely different table. This is what it means when, when John is saying, look, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. How does he do that? Through the righteousness of Jesus, it, his atonement, it, it covers us and it cleanses us. It makes us a new person. It gives us a new identity. It gives us a new purpose. It makes it so that we're not known by our failures. We're not known by our mistakes. We're not known by whatever uh, family drama we have in the past. We're not known by, by whatever future mistakes we're going to have in the future. We are seen and we are known by Jesus Christ. And here's the best part. It doesn't stop there. It covers us. It cleanses us. But it makes us conquerors. 
In other words, it gives us a new purpose. We don't have to live by ourselves. We don't have to be trapped by, by the sins that want to keep us down, by the things in our life that want to hold us back because Jesus conquered death. And if Jesus conquered death, then he's made us conquerors in him. And so look, you, you, a healthy view of atonement, uh, one way of just understanding it very, and this is a very fundamental understanding. I know some of you are gonna send me some emails this week. That's okay, you can bring them on. Jesus covers us, Jesus cleanses us, and Jesus has made us conquerors. There's a new identity here, and John, John wants to remind the early church of this because he just talked about like sin, right? This is like really heavy. But he's like, look, even though you keep on sinning, Jesus has covered you, cleansed you, and made you a conqueror, and you can move forward. You don't have to stop. The other part of this verse that can make a lot of people stumble is the whole thing about uh, not only for your sins, but for the sins of the whole world. What is John saying there? One uh, interesting way of looking at this is called universalism. Universal salvation, meaning what Jesus did on the cross universally saved everybody. Nobody's going to hell. Nobody is going to spend eternity completely separated from God. And everybody will eventually end up in heaven with Jesus. This is why all religions will eventually end up in the same place. This is why we can all be at peace and harmony with one another. John does use this phrase more than others. He does it in his gospel, chapter one, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'll use this kind of language later on, even in his own letter, but, but this does not mean, this does not mean that everybody is automatically saved. That everybody is automatically uh, entered into the kingdom of heaven. And John, if you want to use John as an example, then you have to use John as an example because in more places than in that, he says you have to have a saving faith in Jesus. And so we don't have time to unpack these verses, but I want to give these verses to you uh, for uh, future study. John 3, 36, his gospel, John 17, verse 9, and then later on in his letter, we'll unpack 1 John 5, 11 through 13, can help us understand John's fuller theology that he's unpacking around the atonement of Jesus. Is Jesus' death on the cross sufficient enough to cover the sins of the world? Yes. But do you need to trust in Jesus to receive that forgiveness? Yes. The first thing that John talks about when he says this is what it looks like to be a disciple is trust. You, you want to be covered. You want to be cleansed. You want to be a conqueror. Trust in Jesus. Trust in him. What does trust look like? It's the first confession. It's the first confession in your heart when you say, I cannot restore my relationship with God. But Jesus can. Jesus, cover me. Jesus, cleanse me. Jesus, make me a conqueror. I trust my life with you. This is what it means to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you, this is the first step you need to take today. You can't move forward in the other steps unless you do trust. And trust doesn't stop. It's continually something that we wrestle with again and again and again. What else does John say? Let's keep reading. John, uh, 1 John 1, we'll start here in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him 
if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is, is perfected. You can see in this text how John himself is wrestling with the tension that we wrestle with. He uses the word keeping his commandments, right? Keeping his commandments. What does this mean? Oftentimes we can read this so literally that what we do is we move all the way over here towards something called legalism where it's all about the do's and don'ts, all about the checklist. Now look, our list's bad? No. Some of us, let's be honest, some of us need lists (laughs) in our life. But it becomes all about that. Keep the commandments, keep the commandments, keep the commandments. Do the right things, say the right things, be in the right places. Again, is that necessarily wrong? No, but it becomes all about that. When John uses the word keep, and he uses it several times, the the word that's actually being translated is not necessarily that you check a box. The word being translated has more of a sense that you are in a continual, intentional pursuit towards something. That you are persevering toward an end. Not that you would ever look completely like Jesus, because let's be honest, None of us are ever going to look completely like Jesus, but that our lives would look like people who are trying to become like Jesus. That's what keeping the commandments when John is writing is all about. He's, look, be in this constant pursuit of trying to be like Jesus. And look, if legalism is on one end, the other end is just as bad. The other end says, look, show up on the weekend, eat some bread, drink some juice, sing a song, say a prayer, open the word. You hit the reset button, go live however you want. Jesus covered you, cleansed you, conquered you, or you're conquered, right? So it's just like, who cares what you do during the week? You're good, free pass. Well, that's not healthy for anybody. And you can see how John's wrestling with this with the early church and how we wrestle with this now. He's like, look, I don't want you to sin, but you are gonna sin and God has grace, right? It's just like we're in this tension. We're in this tension together to be in this active pursuit of what it looks like to become like Jesus, He says the love of God perfected. Again, oftentimes when we think about something being perfected, we think about something being finished, but we're never gonna be finished on this side of heaven. It's impossible. What he's saying is that it's a fullness, that when we are wrestling with this tension in our life and we wrestle with this tension, some of us, we need lists, some of us, we need more grace. It's this tension that we're constantly doing as we strive to be more like Jesus. And in this striving to be more like Jesus, changing how we think, changing what we say, changing what we do to better reflect more what he wants us to reflect, there's a fullness of God's love that starts to dwell in us. And this fullness isn't a complete, like, uh, isn't something static. It's like a river, a rushing river that's moving forward, that gives us momentum, that gives us encouragement, that gives us energy. John talks about sin. If you're uncomfortable, I'm going to ask you to get uncomfortable, to, to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because this isn't the last time we're going to talk about sin. This is something that, unfortunately, isn't a word that's often said sometimes at different churches. But but it's in the text. We're saying it. Frank did a great job just unpacking exactly what that means. You can reference last week's message if, if if you want to just recap some of that. But here's the thing. Here's what I want to encourage you with. The second thing, the first thing is trust. The second thing is becoming. 
First thing is trust in Jesus. That's a, f- a first step in becoming a disciple. The second thing is becoming more like Jesus, this, this constant endeavor of moving forward. And here's what we need to understand, is that in order to constantly become like Jesus, we have to let Jesus change us. And too often, what we're guilty of is letting Jesus change certain parts of our life without Jesus changing all of our life. And this just gets really nitty-gritty. One of the most dangerous prayers that you can pray this week, and I'm challenging you, I'm challenging you to pray this prayer this week, is to ask what you should be confessing. In your quiet time with God, just with full sincerity, say, Jesus, please help me see things in my life that I should be laying down before you. Because here's the thing, oftentimes... I call them headline sins, and I don't mean to diminish them, but I do want to just exaggerate the point, if you will. Sins of great, like sexual perversion and immorality, like sins where there's coercion and and like uh, great uh, disunity and distrust, where people are just ruining people's lives at an epic scale. Like these are headline sins, and oftentimes what can happen is we can find ourselves saying, at least I don't struggle with, and you fill in the blank. Headline sins are the ones that make the paper, the one that make the news, the one that make the group text with your family or friends. I thank God for Paul. Paul knew, or God knew, and so he used Paul to do it, that we needed lists, right? Because we need explanation. In, in the book of Galatians, in the book of Colossians, Paul writes these letters. He, he kind of he lays out a fuller understanding of the kind of sins we should be aware of in our own life. You, you know what he raises to the same level as like sexual perversion, greed, and pride. The Bible has more to say about greed and pride than anything sexual. Oftentimes, these are the hardest things to actually uncover. Do you know what else is listed? What else is listed is slander. Helpful definition for slander. Here's what slander looks like. You're in a conversation with somebody talking about somebody else. I'm sure I'm the only one in the room who has these kinds of conversations. (laughs) Slander looks like this. When you leave that conversation, the person you were talking to thinks less of the person you were talking about. It's not just something that happens on Twitter. It's not just something that happens over corporate emails. It's something that happens all too often just in our day-to-day. The, the, these are like the, the real things that we just need to let the light of Christ shine on in our life. Pray the prayer this week. God, help me to see the things that I should be confessing of. You want to take your group to the next level? For those of you that already started the confession discussion, talk about what the Spirit showed you. Maybe it'll take a day. Maybe it'll take an hour. Maybe there's a lot to confess. It'll take like a minute. I don't know. You know, it's just between you and God, whatever it is. But look, this is all about becoming like Jesus means exposing the areas in which we are not like Jesus. And here's the beauty of it. We can feel like, oh, that's just a list we need to conform to. But it's, it's a grace that we are entered into because we are covered and we are cleansed and we are conquerors. So whatever it is that we are struggling with, greed, pride, uh, slander, malice, whatever it may be, Christ's atonement over our lives is sufficient enough for us to overcome that and for us to change and to become more like him. And we do it together. John is writing this whole thing 
this whole letter that he's writing in the context that you do it together. And in every area, of, in almost every other area of your life, even in secular environments where it's all about the team, what is it? How, how much can you perform? How much can you know? How much can you, how much can you contribute? How far can you climb up the ladder? How much can you do better than your teammate? Like, if we're really honest, like this sense of competition is here in, in, in all kinds of places in and around, in and around our life. And this is the beauty of the church. This is the beauty of the unity that we have under the gospel of Jesus. The unity that we have as a church is to say, look, we are, if we have a saving faith in Jesus, we are all covered, cleansed, and we are all conquerors, and so we're just going to do this together. Jesus has already won the, the war, so we lose a couple battles. We get back up because of who Jesus is in us. We should be encouraged. John is trying to encourage us in this way. I, uh, coaching uh, my, my second grade daughter, uh, my daughter's in second grade, her, her rec league basketball team, which is a whole fun experience. But um, all these, you know, girls playing basketball, it's fun. And so uh, yesterday, which by the way, we did win the game yesterday. It's not about winning, but we did win. Um, I'm sitting there during the huddle, right? And uh, I'm down, and I have to get down because they're like this tall. And, uh, you know, we're talking. And I, as you could imagine, I'm a very uh, excitable person and very gregarious on the sidelines as a coach, cheering the girls on and whatnot. And my throat was getting dry, right? Because I'm just cheering them on pretty loudly. And, and so when your throat's dry, sometimes you have to cough, right? And so I cough, and I, I cover my, my mouth with my hand, and I cough. And this, this sweet little girl, second grader, her eyes get wide and her mouth drops. And I'm just like, what, what, what's wrong? And she says, you just coughed into your hand. Okay, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> you know, uh, can we get back to bed? I don't know what to do with this. Here's the thing. Pay attention to the people in your life who are also trying to become like Christ. This is why being in a group is so important. It's not, it's not about like going through a cool study Okay, it's not about like the cool trendy thing to do as a church. What it's about is getting nitty gritty in your life, allowing other people into your life so that they can look at you and be like, stop coughing into your hand. Use your sleeve, you animal. That's what she was thinking, let's be honest. This is why confessing to each other is so important. This is why having real people in our lives is so important. Because as we share life and as we share experiences, we just look at the people across the room and we go, I just did something wrong and I don't know what. Help me see. We trust in Jesus. We become more like Jesus. The last thing we do is we imitate Jesus. We do the things that Jesus did. And the best way to truly surround ourselves in a way that we can do this is in community. Let's read the last verse together. Verse 6, starting at the end of verse 5. Here we go. It says, if, um, But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
You're like, that's kind of a, a weird way to say that. But you should be thankful for Bible translators. Uh, a Greek scholar, for, to, to, to exhaust the point, he says, this is what, how the verse would read if you read it literally word for word in the Greek. I have it on the screen so you can see it. It says this. The one that says he remains in him, he ought, just as that one walked, even himself ought to walk in this way likewise. I go, thank you for Bible translators. That we can read the Bible in a way that we can understand it. Look, we have to imitate Jesus. We we have to do what he did. You want to know what a, a full image of a disciple looks like? You want to know what a full image of someone who is walking the way looks like? They trust in Jesus, they become like Jesus. And they do what Jesus does. And it's just every single day you're trusting, you're becoming, and you're doing. You're trusting, you're becoming, and you're doing. And you're balancing these two really important things of, of action and relationship. And it's, it's where those meld together in which we have discipleship that we can truly walk the way. As summer approaches, in the Deering household, we look forward to camping. We love to tent camp. And so I just apologize now for the excessive amount of camping analogies I may use in the months to come. Uh, but I'm going to kick us off. So we love to camp at state parks. And uh, we think Wisconsin has phenomenal state parks. And so we tent camp at state parks. And one of the things that they do well is they have bathhouses, like restrooms, right? Like within a certain pr- uh, proximity of, of every tent location, which is good. Especially when you got a whole family and you find yourself up in the middle of the night or whatever it may be, right? You want to you get there. But if it's not like across the street, if you will, sometimes it's a path like through the woods. And not a long path terribly, but a path through the woods to get to the bathhouse. And so the first day you're learning this path, you're traveling back and forth, you know, back and forth. Then at night you get your flashlight out, you're walking back and forth, back and forth. What happens, like three days go by and you're like, I don't need a flashlight. I know my way. And so without any, without any help, you know the way. And so you walk the way to the bathhouse and you walk the way back, leading kids or not, whatever you're doing in the moment. Oftentimes, this is how we approach our relationship with Jesus. We're in the beginning. We got the light on bright. And we're, we're walking a path that we have not walked before. We're trusting, and we're becoming, and we're doing. But one of the dangers when we, when, when we have walked a long time is that we can find ourselves with all the right rhythms in our life. And don't get me wrong, these are good rhythms. We should have these rhythms, rhythms of personal spiritual practice, of prayer, and, and all these things. Uh, rhythms, here we have like uh, togetherness, right? Like, like coming here on the weekend, getting in a group, serving, all these things. Like these are right rhythms. These are good rhythms. But the longer we walk with Jesus, sometimes we're so used to the rhythm that we walk the path. We walk the way of Jesus without Jesus. And what we've done is we say, I have enough systems, I've learned enough, I've achieved enough, I have all the right people in my life, I really don't need to know anything more about how I can like, truly become like Jesus. Like, I, I'm good enough. But friends, this is the beauty of what John is saying. That in the context of community, you are never alone in walking the way. Look around. 
We're all on a journey to walk the way in different, different areas, different timelines in that journey of walking the way to be more like Jesus. And if that's not enough, just remember that Jesus has covered you and Jesus has cleansed you and Jesus has made you a conqueror. And all of us who have a saving faith in Jesus, we're covered, we're cleansed, and we're conquerors, and we do it together. Let's not turn the light off in our life. Let's turn the light on. Let's help each other out. Let's be more than just saying hi on a Sunday morning. Let's dig into relationship during the week and know what's going on in someone's heart. Know what's going on in someone's life so that we can mutually help each other, not because someone's better and someone's worse, not because someone's further along in the journey and because you're newer in the journey, but because it's the best journey that we could ever endeavor to embark on to become more like Jesus, and we don't have to do it alone. Jesus is with us, and all of you who call Jesus your Savior are with us as well. This is what it is to walk the way. And John, John is going to press into this even more. You're like, wait, even more? Yeah, <laughs> buckle up. This letter it hits hard, but it's good. And the reward that we can have, the fullness, again, the fullness that we can have in walking the way together is better than anything else. Are you ready? Are you ready to walk the way? Let's turn the light on. Let's lock arms. And let's become like Jesus. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love that, that shines into our light. And Father, help us to be encouraged this morning at how you cover us, how you cleanse us, and how you make us conquerors. Father, help us to be encouraged that we just continually trust in you, become more like you, and do what you did. Do what you do. And may, may we find this season, may we find a renewed and refreshed understanding of what it looks like to walk in the way giving you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.